So Chris Staff, Managing Director of Assemble Communities and Make Ventures, always a pleasure catching up with your good self. I, I thought we'd open with your analysis of the commercial real estate market here in Australia. Broadly speaking, what are the key themes or trends that, that you're looking at? Yeah, so I guess, look, what we're seeing, you know, and we talk to a lot of our sort of institutional partners, um, the like, and, you know, and what they're sort of focused on is we have seen, you know, over the last two years in particular, this sort of rush to old tenants. So health, logistics, you know, I think housing's now becoming one of those with the emergence of built to rent and, you know, and a sort of slight move away from some of the original sort of core asset classes in, you know, malls and offices and, and the like. So, so we, we are seeing sort of those trends sort of continue. And look, logistics is probably the most interesting one for me. Like, you know, I sort of, you know, no expert in logistics, it's not a space that we play in, but it's just been quite fascinating watching the sort of rush of capital into that space and talking to some of our advisors about it, saying what's driving that, and a lot of it's about saying, you know, that someone buys an industrial shed in Western Sydney that's, you know, got a half-decent lease covenant but nothing great on a 3% yield, and they're saying, well, they're just basically banking pretty extreme rent growth for the next decade to get that back to a, a more sort of bankable um, yield. And, I think what we'll see in housing as well and in, in sort of purpose-built sort of rental accommodation, um, I think we'll see similar themes emerging. So we've seen sort of structural undersupplies in most capital cities so as off-the-plan developments become uh, less prolific. Um, and what we'll see is we're starting to see now the population growth and sort of immigration turning back on and potentially super cycle immigration. We're interested to see what happens with the Commonwealth election and whether that becomes an issue. So Frydenberg's already come out and said we're going back to 235,000 per annum. But, you know, is the reality that all of a sudden they say as a, as a sort of stimulus measure and to get skilled, you know, skilled labour and um, and the like into the, into the economy, you know, and fill some of those voids that are clearly there at the moment. You know, we're seeing that driving inflation across a whole bunch of sectors. Um, you know, do we see them go to sort of 350, 400, you know, for three or four years? And then you say, if you've had this sort of structural undersupply housing, coupled with the sort of boom in the demand side, you know, we're going to see, I think, similar themes come through in, you know, in growth in sort of housing rents. So I guess they're the sort of key themes that we're sort of looking at and sort of analysing at the moment. So, but um, it's been fascinating. Look, that ESR acquisition of the, of the sort of milestone portfolio last year was just fascinating and you know talking to Australian Super one of our clients and the sort of co-owner of the business with us about it you know and they had a really good look at that as well and you know and hearing them now so that actually you know in, in retrospect it actually you know looks like really good buying now because things have even come in and it's even tighter so you know it's interesting to see so if the if they are forecasting these really high rent growth you know then you've sort of got some sort of a natural hedge then against interest rate increases and the like so which will be um, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how that plays out and whether that demand continues, but yeah. Given the, the enormous weight of capital and liquidity in the market, are you finding that it's harder to acquire development sites or projects in a competitive manner? Look, there's always competition there. Um, the competition for the sort of assets that we're looking at is coming from other um, sort of institutionally backed housing platforms that are looking at build to rent or some other sort of hybrid models or the like. So, so and it's interesting, like there's some really good examples like the, the UAG sale of their asset in, in Macaulay Road to which, you know, Macquarie bought with local, um, you know, their platform partner there for a BTR. All the BTR developers, you know, 20 to 25 percent above the off the plan guys. So, and then you sort of see some of these policy settings come out, you know, and, you know, we sort of, where you've got land tax breaks and all these other things for build to rent. So you're sort of already stimulating, you know, an asset class that's sort of super stimulated. So and we think that sort of trend will continue. You know, there's enough 
good quality platforms now establishing themselves with good quality clients, you know, good quality asset owners that they're working on behalf of that we think um, there'll continue to be sort of increased competition from built to rent operators um, and developers for, you know, well-located city fringe middle ring type assets. So, yeah, so it's definitely competitive. It'll be interesting to see whether off the plan comes back. You know, I think there'll be a bit of nervousness from, you know, mum and dad investors and the like around interest rates, um, house price depreciation, some of these other things will sort of maybe go against the off the plan developers. So, and again, that sort of fuels my point from earlier to say, well, if off the plan is still suppressed, then you know, really that you know, really opens the door for build to rent to emerge you know, at pace. You know, so we'll see you know, an emergence of you know, a flow of capital into that asset class you know, at a fast pace because we'll, the investors, are, you know, they're all over it and they'll look forward and they'll say, clearly immigration's coming back, maybe even a really high setting of immigration, so the demand side's going to be massive. So we need to get assets into that market for two or three or four years' time, get those built and you know, probably achieve um, you know, really, you know, strong rent performance and then strong rent growth over the sort of medium to long term, so. And then looking at the, the short term, do you foresee or are you forecasting that the market will still be pretty buoyant over the course of the next, say, six to 12 months or do you see some challenges on the horizon? No, look, I think the velocity of capital into sort of institu institutionally financed housing, you know, is just increasing, you know, and we're sort of constantly getting approached by potential other clients and future clients and people that have got mandates to invest in multifamily housing or rent to buy or whatever it is. So that velocity doesn't seem to be slowing down, um, you know, and there's still, you know, well-resourced private development groups looking at off-the-plan models and stuff that'll you know, continue to invest in their pipeline. So, um, you know, we may see similar um, trends emerge that stimulate, you know, the off-the-plan the off market as well. So if we are, you know, returning to high population growth in these key themes, the key macros that really drive the market, then um, that may, in a similar way that it's stimulating institutional investment into, you know, multifamily assets, stimulate the off-the-plan buyers to, you know, invest in that market on the basis that they know the population's coming, the demand side's going to be high, potentially high rent growth and the like. Yeah. What about then in terms of construction costs and, and material costs? What are you seeing? What we're seeing, look, domestic construction seems to be a much bigger issue than, than sort of commercial construction. So we've got a construction partner, Hacer, which we've just given a couple of contracts to for, um, you know, what is it, 110, $120 million worth of work or something for a couple of our um, projects that we're doing um, on behalf of Australian Super. Um, you know, and we've let those contracts sort of on budget, you know, and they were budgets that were set sort of 18 months ago. So, like, definitely there's elements of... Um, the sort of supply chain or the composition of a project that have gone up, you know, so steel's more expensive, aluminium's more expensive, um, probably concrete as well, so, you know, some of the key core elements, but, you know, given so much of the project's cost sort of labour and the like, you know, and you sort of know what that's doing over time, and the EBA's set the escalation regimes, you can, you can sort of move ahead of that. So we've been, I guess, pleasantly surprised, but I think it's also the way in which you're managing it. So I think the way in which say build to rent developers um, would look at sort of partnering with a contractor. It's a bit more like student housing, you know, so you've got Urban Nest worked with Icon, Scape worked with Built. So because of, there's a much more repetition and similarity building to building, you know, off the plan you're trying to come up with some bespoke design feature and something else to sort of appeal to a market and sell your apartments and, you know, special pendant lights or God knows what it is, right? So, you know, those sort of things. So whereas build to rent, it's a much more formulaic and manufacturing-like approach to housing. So it doesn't mean it's vanilla. You know, there are, you know, some sort of, I guess, area-specific sort of 
design elements that are, you know, that you might customise or whatever, but you become a much more predictable partner for, your, for the builder and the builder's supply chain. So we only do one sort of kitchens, right? We do one sort of toilet pan, one sort of tap. So across the whole, you know, portfolio of projects, you know, we've got a voluminous design book that our design management team have put together that dictates all those elements. So, and I think what that means is you become a much more predictable partner for your um, construction partner um, and you get value as a part of that as a result of that and I think the sort of other key thing as well is I think early contractor engagements become you know just a must-have so I think you know as the markets got busy particularly interstate you know like Queensland's diabolical Western Australia's diabolical so you know New South Wales not much better and you know Victoria's maybe okay at the moment where there's a large volume of projects ready to start construction off a relatively limited contractor base. One of the ways to sort of get value and to have your builder engaged in the process from earlier is a proper early contractor engagement process. So we've got a partnering agreement that we're working on with HACER where we can say to them, here's the rhythm of our projects that are going to go to site over the next 12 to 18 months and they can put their team onto it early. You know, because every developer thinks they're a builder, right? And I think they know everything about building and this and that. And then you, you know, then you finally sort of tender a job and there's sort of 400 things that you sort of haven't got right and that you need to sort of value manage and muck around with and it's a super inefficient process. So let's just sort of get them in from the start. You know, as long as you've got confidence that they're dealing and pricing things in a fair way and you have third party validation via quantity surveyors and you know, market cross checks and everything else, then I think that's really the way to sort of drive value into these buildings to start with to get their actual contractor smarts. So, and we've had to invest in team as well. So, we, most of our team who manage the delivery of our assets are out of tier one construction companies. So, We've got Sam Dalmenico, who's our, who's our head of design and construction. He's ex ProBuild, state managing director from ProBuild. Um, Kimberly Lau is our design director, so she's ex um, design, head of design management at ProBuild. So I think you do need some certain resources on your side of the fence too if you're going to adopt that early contractor engagement approach. So you need to have the right horsepower, you know, an IP and intellect and understanding you know, what the sort of contractor market's like. So we're feeling pretty good about it at the moment, but you know, we haven't got our head in the sand on it. There clearly are things, and you know, we've seen things change. You know, containers out of China went from sort of three and a half grand to 18 grand, now they're 10 grand again. So, um, you know, like not so much more for domestic, but you know, framing timber went from two bucks a lineal metre to six bucks a metre, now it's back at three. So supply chains do seem to be sort of, you know, adjusting themselves and, you know, normalising in some ways. So. Um, which I think, you know, hopefully we get back to a more, I guess, sort of predictable um, market. So in terms of, yeah, the cost of delivering, delivering our assets, yeah. Before we move on, the Victorian government has flagged further tax impost by a contribution to a new social housing growth fund. Uh, all developers are, are talking about it. You obviously talk to a lot of developers and talk to people in the industry. What's, what's your reading on, on what the impact could be of that? Yeah, look, it's interesting, um, you know, so I think philosophically, I think anything that gets more low-income housing built, you know, housing that's income appropriate for people that find pretty housing pretty hard is something that we're 100% aligned with the government on. So, and, and I think, you know, I think the, you know, Andrews and Palace and Wynn and things have done a really good job compared to governments before them, you know, of implementing reform and the delivery of new social housing through the big housing build, put five and a half billion dollars of you know the Victorians money up for the first phase of that and clearly now what they're trying to construct is a sort of annual revenue stream to fund that um, you know the sort of build out of new housing ongoing 
I guess it's sort of more the, the sort of mechanism for collection, which I sort of question. Um, and it's more around saying, so when they got the new um, payroll tax disability services payment, right, the extra 0.5% that businesses have to shell out to sort of fund, you know, disability services into the future, is to say, well, why is it just the sort of real estate industry and the, the housing development industry's job to finance all social housing moving forward? So why is that, isn't that not a bigger societal issue? So is it not the sort of job of, you know, all business, all Victorians to, you know, help finance that in a sort of perpetual way. So, and I think to sort of burden just the housing development industry with that responsibility, I think maybe doesn't feel quite right for me. So, but I guess we'll sort of see where that goes through the consultation phase. And I'm not convinced that it just gets passed on to homeowners either. So, you know, I think, I think that's not how markets work. So I think, you know, the reality is homeowners can afford what they can afford, you know, and first home buyer can afford a $500,000 house today, whether there's not, whether there's an extra 10 grand or whatever of tax within that doesn't mean that all of a sudden they can afford 510,000, right? So it has to get absorbed either in the underlying land value or, you know, reduction development margin or, or whatever else. So, um, look, it'll be interesting to see what happens during the consultation period, but it does, you know, it feels like there's a sort of pretty consistent cadence now of, of sort of government coming to the real estate industry for sort of thing after thing. So philosophically terrific, more social housing. It's sort of like more the sort of mechanism they're using. I'm, I'm sort of, I think there's probably still a few question marks about that. Let's now talk about Assemble Communities, the business you launched five years ago in, in 2017. We are talking off camera, I think back then you had about three or four staff, fast forward to 2022, you've got some 45 odd staff. How, how's the business grown over the past five years? Well, it's, it's obviously grown a lot. Um, you know, we've invested a lot of working capital into the platform, sort of venture capital, I guess, effectively, so to, to get it set up. And what we, our business plan was always to build the platform, so build the opco first. So, so have built our tech, have our, our apps already done, it's in the app store, we've got our property management system, our back-end accounting systems, all that's built and ready to sort of operate. So, and then, and building teams in our sort of customer service protocols, the people that'll be operating, interfacing with our communities, et cetera. So to build all that first and invest really heavily, you know, in a pretty big team, in a much bigger team than we need to sort of operate, you know, the projects that we've currently got on. So to front load that. And it's because you're going to need to do what your clients need. So investors like Australian Super, for example, need to look at us and say, well, clearly they're investing in all the elements that we're going to need to be able to effectively and diligently run, they'll deliver projects for us, deliver assets for us, and then manage those assets for us. So and I think, I think that's where potentially a few people that are looking at build to rent are maybe struggling a bit, you know, is they're not willing to make the investment in the team and the operating platform that the clients need to see um, in advance of just wanting to go and stick up 45 cranes all around the country and build a whole bunch of assets. So what we've done is we've built a massive pipeline of projects now, we've built a really sophisticated team and um, um, you know, a, a big team. Um, and Australian Super and ourselves have invested heavily in, in building that and that's been a deliberate strategy. And now we're moving into the phase of sort of sticking up the cranes and, and everything else because we didn't want to get in a position where we're all of a sudden we've got, you know, a billion dollars worth of projects under construction all around the place and then we're sort of sort of chasing our tail trying to work out how we're actually going to run them and, you know, what we've forgotten about, etc. get the tech built. So, yeah, so it's been a really interesting journey and we've got a really diverse team. I think we're pretty lucky in some ways about what people get attracted to. And I think the last two years is in, in who they want to work for, I think the last two years has probably really sort of exacerbated that for people. So they are interested in what's the purpose and the impact and some of those other sort of non-financial elements of businesses and the way they operate and the fact that we're 
doing social housing in partnership with Housing Choices Australia. You know, we've got sort of home ownership pathway models that are super innovative. You know, we're looking at sort of sustainability and decarbonisation in a really sophisticated way. It does attract some really interesting and talented people to this business that perhaps you know, you know, other developers may struggle to struggle to get. So, so it's been a, a sort of good journey and a really sort of fun and you know, it's a great place to sort of come to work and love getting out of bed each morning and, and getting into it. But um, as do most of the team. Um, but now we've got to move into that phase now where fine, you've got this big team, this big operating platform, you know, let's get into delivery and, and start ripping into a, a few projects which will be into this year, which is super exciting. And the team's really looking forward to that as well. They want to sort of get in and get some buildings built, start, you know, operating some communities at, at, at sort of real scale. And has the investment profile or the investment mandate, I should say, has that changed over the years or is the philosophy still the same? The philosophy is still the same, so we're still focused on that part of the housing market, which we sort of call the missing middle. So, so we think government, the community housing sector, and the like do a pretty good job. You know, at the really pointy end of the housing market, which is like transitional housing, public housing, crisis accommodation, those sorts of things. Look, it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect, and clearly they need more capacity in that system. But they do do a pretty good job with the resources they've got available to them. And then at the other end, we've got sort of home ownership, the private rental market and people on sort of more upper middle incomes and things and higher incomes function quite comfortably in that space. The space that we're sort of working on is this sort of space between what we call the sort of missing middle, which is, you know, the people that don't qualify for public housing or whatever else and may be existing in a private rental accommodation but spending too much of their salary and things on the cost of that accommodation. So developing income appropriate housing solutions for them. So. What we started with and what we're working on with Australian Soup is obviously a pathway into home ownership, which is a sort of bit of a hybrid model somewhere between off the plan and build to rent. So we sort of own the asset in one line for five years and people can buy their apartments at, at the end of that five years for a pre-agreed price you know, that we agree up front and they know what their rent's going to be and we support them with financial coaching and those sort of things. So Australian Soup is really focused on that and so, so are we. Um, and one of the reasons that they're focused on that is that they think, um, um, as do we, that home ownership's an important part of giving someone a dignified retirement. So, so you know, the reality is that, you know, the reason that the sort of 70-year-old couple in Glen Waverley are, you know, three months of the year with the Jayco in Byron Bay or whatever the hell they're doing is because the house they bought for 100 grand you know, 30 years ago is now worth two million bucks or whatever. So, you know, and they've also got some superannuation. So we're trying to create a model like that as well for, you know, people in today, because people do find housing hard and they find ownership intimidating. So, and you know, for a bit, for an investor like Australian Super, you know, everyone sort of looks at them and, you know, thinks they're sort of like this, you know, big mega investor, which they are. But the reality is it's 2.6 million working class Australians retirement savings, you know, and these are not high income people. So us developing solutions that can help their members and people like their members into home ownership is a very big focus for us. And that's a big mandate and important mandate for us. And then we've got other clients that we work with who are interested in different things for different reasons. So our social and affordable bill to rent um, projects, so they'll be done with um, different equity partners than the Aussie Super stuff. So yeah, so I think we've got a pretty broad mandate, but a mandate that's always sort of focused on sort of housing that's income appropriate for sort of you know very low, low and middle income you know Australians. So which is where we sort of see the the sort of real void being. Now you were one of the early adopters in in recognising the potential of the build to rent sector here in Australia. Obviously, you launched the business in in 2017. It's very popular now. When you look at the sector, how how big do you think the market opportunity is? And and even before that, what did you see? Do you think that others perhaps may not have seen those years ago? 
So look, I think if you sort of break that down, so I think, look, I think the market opportunities, you know, definitely large. You know, and we're sort of, you know, some of the work that we do with some of our advisors, you know, we think that, you know, probably over the next 10 to 12 years, there could be 200, 220,000 institutionally owned housing units um, in Australia. So and that's obviously a, you know, a big step jump from where we sort of are at today. So. Um, and there's definitely capital around that could facilitate the delivery of housing at, 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 at that scale. So, um, so we expect that to emerge and we expect the, again, in, in the same way, and some of the things they say, well, there's all the headwinds, there's interest rates potentially going up and things. But it's interesting, if you look back through history, you know, we see in a high inflation environment, wages is typically increasing. So wage price index would be moving up, you know, during a high inflation environment and typically rent tracks with wages. So you do get a bit of a natural hedge there as well. So we do, whilst there might be some short to medium term pressure on models as a part of interest rate rises, we don't expect that that's going to sort of be a massive sort of disincentive for capital wanting to sort of plough into that, into the sector and deliver build to rent assets um, nationally. So look, what did I see? Um, look, it was, I guess a deliberate approach to say, well, Australia's got the fourth biggest pension so superannuation market, you know, in the world. You know, and the reality is that most of those um, funds didn't have any direct exposure to the residential housing market. They got big exposures to commercial office, retail, industrial, etc. So, if we could develop models that. We, you know, where we could mobilise that capital into the, you know, into the Australian housing market and deliver appropriate investment returns for their members and these type of things, then that'd be something that we thought, you know, we sort of had always identified as being a very big opportunity. Um, you know, and we were, we did a lot of work with Australian Super to sort of build out that investment thesis and the like back in the day. So, I think the big thing that we're seeing, I'm seeing today because we do a lot of work with our clients, you know, the super funds, um, a lot of work with our banking partners, you know, particularly with sort of groups like ANZ. I think what they're saying is a lot of people coming in and talking about build to rent, you know, and wanting to be in build to rent and whether that's, you know, developers that are having difficulty in their off the plan model, whatever it is, doesn't matter. The thing that, that they're telling us, you know, and the, and the things that our clients like Aussie Super tell us is there's very few of them that are actually investing appropriately, you know, in the operating platform. So that's the secret source to it. The rest of it's nonsense, like, you know, getting planning and building a building and everything else. Anyone can do that. All the steps of this, you know, find there's nuances to design, but all the, um, you know, all the steps for an off-the-plan project are the same for a build-to-rent project thing. The secret is once it's finished and you've got residents, why does someone have a better quality of life? Why do they enjoy living in an assembled building more than your competitors or more than in the sort of mum and dad-owned investment property that they've been in for the last 10 years or whatever? So, and that's what capital's telling us. So, you know, and you've got to respond to capital. You say, there's probably only three or four platforms nationally. So. Businesses like Heinz and Greystar and things, you know, you know, are clearly massive internationally and then can translate that operational expertise that they've, they've already got. Um, and then there's groups like, you know, Home and Mervac and stuff that are developing it in us. So, but there's probably only five or six groups that are wanting to be in the space that are actually investing properly in how are we actually going to run these assets on behalf of the asset owners. So, you know, how are we going to look after our communities? Why are they going to have a better life with us? That's the defensive business model, you know, is to make sure you're investing in that quality of life and service and, and the like, you know, once you've actually got residents. So, because, you know, there's really what you want to do is you say, well, 
say I've got one of my staff living in one of our buildings somewhere and they, you know, really what you want is for someone to say, and I need them to move to Brisbane. They say, well, you're fine, I'll move to Brisbane, but only if I can live in one of your buildings, right? So, so that's the sort of, you know, that's, that's what we're sort of being really focused on. And we've got a big team that we build out of student accommodation, um, really, mostly. You know, that's the most comparable asset class domestically. Um, they operate under the same legislation in all jurisdictions. So, you know, and they've done a really terrific job in building out the tech and custom management protocols. Um, so, yeah, and sort of just developing our service model, which has been really, you know, a fascinating process to go through, to be honest. Yeah, and like we're about to open our first project in, our pilot project in three or four months, and the set of team will, you know, get to actually sort of practice it, which will be be great. I want to ask you about exactly that point. So, so walk us through what you've got coming up that's going to be delivered and then what you've got in the pipeline in the near term, if you could. Yeah, so we've got our little pilot project um, in Kensington, which is 73 apartments and um, and that's um, that's completely subscale for our business, but we sort of knew that. And But um, that gives us basically sort of a live testing ground to run the tech, see what services residents are accessing, um, you know, see what sort of um, you know, events and stuff that they want us to sort of put on and help facilitate for them, get the team to sort of get up, get up to speed, test our hospitality offer. We're running our own hospitality on that site, so we run the full food and bevs. So, you know, and really gives us about 18 months operating at that scale before the big assets start coming on. So, you know, we're about to start building 200 apartments around the corner in Thompson Street, Kensington. Then we've got another project, 170 apartments in Ballarat Street, Brunswick. Um, and then this year we've got another 220 in Coburg, 480 in Preston starting, um, got projects in Clayton and Bentley starting, so another big 380 apartment in Kensington, which is just, <coughs> pardon me, a pure play build to rent. So, so this year, um, you know, we've got close to eight, $900 million worth of construction starting across multiple sites in Victoria. Um, and that'll be about 2,000 apartments, you know, in total, going into delivery over the next 12 months. Um, and then behind that in Victoria, we've got another couple of thousand apartments, a pipeline. Um, and then we've got a project um, in WA and some stuff in Queensland as well. So, um, so we're looking um, to establish a sort of national portfolio. Um, you know, and we're still quite acquisitive as well. So we're looking at, you know, a lot of really interesting opportunities. and. Um, we either do that sort of two ways, like, so stuff that, say, Australians, it's more ready for development now, so Australian super might sort of buy those sites and, you know, develop those assets with us under the, um, the build to rent to own model that we've got, or privately, you know, we've got the ability to warehouse sites so that we know will suit our institutional mandates in the future and, you know, like we just bought Preston Toyota privately, you know, there'll be 600 apartments or something and some retail and the like, but, you know, it's got a long-term lease to Toyota in place, so that doesn't necessarily suit our institutional clients, but when good property does come up that we know will suit the mandates at the point at which it's ready for development, um, you know, we're happy to go and do that privately and effectively land bank that for the institutional clients um, to invest into into the future, so... I'd be interested to get a gauge on how different a build-to-rent product is compared with a build-to-sell product. Obviously, there's a lot more consideration in terms of amenities and that sort of thing, but walk us through what would make somebody uh, want to live in, a, in an assembled communities project as compared with a, another competitor's. Yeah, so I think there's a few parts to that. I think build-to-rent, you know, I'm not you know, build-to-rent developers or multifamily developers 
you know, like to make out like it's this magical black box of mystery and you're just a build a sell guy, you'd sort of never get it. And, you know, I've been through about 90 assets internationally now, you know, through the US, continental Europe and the UK. And I think we understand, you know, the DNA of these buildings pretty well. So, um, you know, and there's a couple of different approaches, you know, most of our, the other people playing in the space in Australia are going for the sort of super high amenity sort of pools and gyms and, butler services and, that, and these type of things, you know, I'm looking to charge a premium to market rent for that. Our sort of design approach and the light's probably more based off a sort of, you know, a sort of housing co-op from Switzerland or something like that where, you know, we've got multi-function communal rooms that the community can use a bunch of different ways during the day. So you might have yoga in the morning and then a, you know, sort of parents group and then kids party in the Arvo on a movie night that night. Um, all in the same space, so make the real estate work quite hard. So, you know, more like a sort of scout hall than a, than a sort of gym. So you don't have to have five different rooms and fill them up with all the types of different things. So um, we've got workshop spaces. So, you know, we did some analysis sort of six or seven years ago now to say, well, what are some of the perceived shortcomings of apartment living? So what are the sort of things that you could do in a, say, two-bedroom terrace house with a courtyard and a little shed? That you can't do in a two-bedroom apartment. So we tried to replace some of those spaces, which in a communal, these spaces are communal in nature. One example is, you know, a workshop that's got stainless steel benches and bike stands and stuff where you can do messy jobs. And we've got a lending library there where people can borrow, you know, a cordless drill or a step ladder or whatever else they need to do these jobs. And then, you know, probably also the other sort of key difference is obviously the. Um, you know, the, having the full-time on-site staff, access to the app, access to the team, either back in the office or, or on-site, you know, is obviously different to what most people are used to in private rental accommodation. So, so that's one element. The other thing that you look at, you do look at your assets differently and what you're building differently. So, you know, we build really long-term sort of life cycle and maintenance models, you know, in partnership with some of our advisors. So, you know, so you're picking sort of tapware, flooring, sanitary ware, um, mechanical services and these types of things with a view to having to own that asset, you know, into the long term. So for the Aussie super stuff, you know, that's five and a bit years. Um, for some of our other clients, you have run 40, 50, 60 year models where they want to be able to own these assets. So, you know, you're sort of doing kitchens every 12 to 13 years, um, bathrooms about the same, the lift motors get done every 30 years, all these type of things. So I think the level of sophistication that you need to use in terms of what's your sort of asset management model going to be um, is one of the, very big differences to you know, what traditionally you would have looked at it in build to sell. So, um, and more consistency. So every building that we do, as I mentioned earlier, it's got the same taps, the same toilets, the same bench tops, the same kitchen, the same flooring. And it's because the reality is, you know, if in 10 years we've got 15 communities in Melbourne, I can't have 15 different types of toilets and 15 types of taps and sort of be able to sort of maintain and, and service those buildings effectively. So trying to get a sort of consistency and be more manufacturing-like in the way that you're thinking about the delivery of these assets and the design of these assets is something we're, we're very focused on as well. What about then from the point of view of location characteristics? So you've got projects underway in North Melbourne, Kensington, I think later down the track, Clayton. Yeah. Do, you, do you look at these locations the same as you would if you were delivering a, a, a typical build to sell type product or are there some differences? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very good question. So there, there are differences. So I think the um, thing with build to sell is you've got to look at a location and the amenity that's in the location and services and, and whatever else and sort of make a decision for today whether or not you can pitch that to someone to buy an apartment off you or 300 people to buy apartments off you or whatever it is. So, so you're looking at 
um, a location in what's it like in 2022 and can I get the sales done right to get the project off the ground and get it built. So the way that we sort of look at our um, build to rent projects in particular is we're looking much more sort of medium to long term. So I'd rather be in Preston than Fitzroy or the CBD, say for example, because our view and the work that we do with our advisors and our sort of investment thesis is that Preston's going to see um, outpace rent growth over time as it gentrifies, um, you know, like that whole sort of Northern Corridor, for example, has done. As it gentrifies, there's more infrastructure investment, you know, the market upgrades, all these sorts of things. So if Melbourne metro market, so it's done about 4.2% for the last 30 years, housing rent, right, all Melbourne. So, so we say, well, um, if that trend continues, so the markets that have got basically infinite supply, and by infinite supply I mean, I know it's not infinite, but you know, basically is, so you know, South Bank, Docklands, Fisherman's Bend, CBD. So they tend to track more with the metropolitan average, whereas markets that are gentrifying and have more limited supply, you know, of housing are likely to sort of outstrip you know, and outperform, you know, that metropolitan average. So that's why we're in places. So Preston Toyota, right, we bought that. The main reason that we bought that privately was one, we knew it would suit our clients down the track, but it's also, it's Regent Station, which is next to us, is one stop from Reservoir Station, which is one of the super stops on the outer metropolitan rail loop. So when Toyota moves out in 15 years and assuming that that rail loop's gone ahead, you know, someone can go from our site, one stop, Monash Uni Airport the other way. So we do try and invest with the infrastructure as well. And sort of, so it's a much sort of longer term view on, on the sort of locations that we're picking and what we think, whether will there be outperformance, you know, in, you know, in rent in those locations, you know, in the sort of medium term and will our clients sort of get the benefit of that. And so, yeah, so I think that's sort of market elements that we're sort of super focused on, yeah. So to what extent are, are projects in the build to rent or the rent to buy sphere that you're operating in, are, are they leasing or going to be leasing at a premium to traditional style product? Uh, no, so all our projects, so we're focused on just keeping them at market rent for equivalent pro, um, projects or, or sort of mum and dad investor type projects in Melbourne. So we're not sort of trying to dial in a five, 10, 15, 20% premium to market rent. And so what we do is we sort of size our rents more on sort of household income. So we have a look at the um, socioeconomic profile of the suburb and we size our rents to not be more than 30% for the various income bands within that. Also that um, the Minister for Housing publishes um, that goes in the Planning Environment Act each year, you know, what is for singles, couples, uh, people with dependents, um, you know, what's a very low, low and middle income for each of those sort of household compositions. And so we, then we measure back to those as well. So we sort of cross check our rents a few ways and then we obviously do some independent valuation work as well. And sort of say compared to an equivalent project, you know, the reality is someone could go and find a two bedroom 70s brick joint you know around the corner that hasn't been renovated in 30 years or whatever else and and so well that two bedroom apartment's only 350 bucks why is yours 500 and it's like well you know the reality is you'll probably spend an extra 150 bucks a week keeping that thing warm let alone you know sort of the fact that it's not equivalent so so we have very much um, tried to focus on yeah just keeping our rents you know at market um, and making sure that they are affordable for the cohort that we're interested in housing. I want to ask you about the, the rent-to-buy projects that you're going to be delivering. So I think you said the time frame for that is five and a half years where somebody can go, basically, if they want to, from a renter to a, to a homeowner. If they don't, if a certain percentage of, of those 
consumers in those properties don't want to go to the home ownership type model, they can continue renting or you'll just hold it as a, as a long-term play? Yeah, so the, well, the, the investment sort of model for those is, you know, so obviously, you know, we've done all sorts of sensitivities about how many people are going to convert. And it's interesting, the ones that we, that's under construction that we um, committed to people, I think, you know, I think back in 2019, um, they're already looking like good value and they don't even have to buy them you know, for another five years or so or five and a half years. So what we'll do is it's, and it's quite interesting because we can obviously track the market and what property values are doing in the locations that we're in and we'll be able to work out well have our residents got, you know, are they under, you know, is, is, are our apartment prices obviously higher than what the market value is? We don't expect that. Um, so, you know, have they got a fair bit of equity effectively in their contract with us? So, you know, the thing they're buying off us for 600 is it now, seven years later, worth, you know, 750 or whatever. So, and we'll know then, we'll say, well, clearly that's a pretty big financial incentive for someone to sort of exercise their option and buy the, buy the property. So, but the model really is to say, we've been pretty upfront with people, say, like, you can stay there for, you know, the five years and be a tenant for it, of ours and you don't have to buy it. You know, there's no obligation to buy it. It's a free option to buy it um, for, you know, a pre-agreed price. You've just been paying the same rent that you would have been paying around the corner. So, and you can leave after a year, two years, three years, four years, five years. But we have been clear and we said, but if you decide not to buy it, you know, then we're going to need you to move out and we're going to renovate, you know, we'll paint the apartment or do whatever we need to do to it and, you know, tidy up the few things that happen over the course of the five years because we are going to move out of this investment. So we're not looking to hold 25% of a building, you know, for another 10 years post the end of the five years. So in an orderly way, you know, our model is to dispose of any res residual apartments, you know, on market, you know, over sort of a 12-month period or thereabouts. So um, because... I think that's and it's an, it's an interesting thing, you know, the platform's not really set up to be participating in an owner's corporation, so it's in our clients, you know, um, you know, while they will for a certain period of time, I, you know, don't really want to own 50 apartments, you know, out of 200 and be sort of dealing with 150, you know, owner-occupiers and whatever else who have, you know, maybe got a different approach to asset management and the like than, than, than what perhaps what we would or our, our clients would. So. Yeah, so our plan is to basically be out of the investment, you know, in, you know, completely, you know, a, maybe a 12 to 18 month period after the end of that five years. On the build to rent front, it, it's an interesting point you raised, which I hadn't considered. So would, would those sort of build to rent type buildings have an owner's corporation where a certain contribution is taken from each rental, rental income or... Well, I guess in effect, yes, but in reality, no. So people just pay their rent, you know, like, um, you know, like they do if you own a, a private rental property, you know, and then the landlord, and we're just effectively the landlord of the whole thing, you know, pays their land tax and rates and maintaining common areas and common area power and, you know, the on-site staff and everything comes out of that. So, so there you're sort of trying to man get your management expense ratio down. So you're sort of saying, well, you know, if you're getting a hundred bucks, you know, a year in rent from this building, you know, how much of that are you spending on operating it so, and maintaining it and the like. So, um, and that's where you do a lot of work on your operational models and the team that we build out of student housing, you know, have a lot of experience on, you know, the maintenance and contractors and things that you need to maintain the asset to, you know, the sort of standards that we expect it to be, you know, and that our clients who, who own the asset, you know, expect us to be and to be able to sort of maintain market rent and things over time. So. So yeah, so the, the people just pay their rent and then effectively it's, I guess it's like an owner's corporation, but it's just one owner. <laughs>
So all this, all the costs are similar. Yeah. So just to close out our discussion, I thought we'd, we'd finish with a couple of questions. Outside of build to rent and rent to buy, are you seeing any opportunity in any other market sectors? Uh, we're pretty busy with the core business, so we're sort of not about to sort of go and, and dabble in, you know, in, in office or health or, or, or retail. I think maybe we, what we see as opportunity in other market sectors is opportunities for us to apply our core business to other parts of the market. So. And one of the probably the big ones you know that we've been doing a bit of work on is the opportunity to partner with some of the mall rates and those types to deliver housing assets in and around their centres and the like, so to give them you know additional income um, from their centres. But yeah, we're not really looking to sort of get into you know any other asset classes at this stage. We're we're pretty got a pretty full time job looking after what we're doing here. So from a funding perspective, you mentioned your your bell part of the business is backed by Australian Super. Are you dealing with any other financial sources? And if so, are they traditional or, or non-bank lenders? Uh, so we don't deal with any, non, um, any sort of non-banks in, you know, in the core business for Assemble. So um, you know, at the moment, we're doing a lot of work with ANZ and we've got a really good partnership with them. ANZ's financing our pilot project for us and um, they've been a great partner for us over the years and will continue to be into the future. Um, so we do a lot of work with them. From the equity side of things, we're dealing with other investors you know, of a similar ilk to Australian Super. So we do find that we've got a really strong value alignment with the industry superannuation sector. So the industry fund movement and there, you know, where you've got, you know, you know, superannuation funds, you know, like sort of Host Plus, Hester, Aussie Super and things, which are sort of high member volume, like a high number of members, but generally relatively low member salaries, so for some of those same reasons that I was talking about earlier, um, they're sort of attracted to investing in things that A, generate strong returns for the members, you know, so they're not there to do the job of government and to deliver social housing and, you know, do it for a low return or whatever else, so, so we need to make sure that we're hitting their return hurdles, but they, to the extent that we can have the impact piece and, and layer the impact piece, so the social impact via low income housing, the environmental impact via, you know, highly sustainable designs, low energy use, decarbonisation of our assets and those sorts of things, they, they're very focused on that. So. And then we've got other, you know, international capital, you know, sovereign fund capital, pension fund capital that are, are interested in partnering with us at the moment. But you know, at the moment, we're focused on consolidating the, you know, the operating business and the team and getting the core team done. And we're feeling pretty close there on that, getting this first suite of projects into delivery. You know, and then once that's occurred, you know, that sort of $900 million worth of work that we were talking about earlier, um, you know, then we'll look to onboard other clients, you know, into the future. So. And just to close out our discussion, what does the next, say, three to five years look for both the Assemble Communities business but also the Make Ventures business as well? So, so Makes, I guess, um, you know, we'll continue to look at new opportunities as they come up and a bit of that sort of warehousing strategy is something that's of interest to us. Um, Makes, obviously, the major shareholder in Assemble Communities, so, um, so we'll obviously manage that investment as well. Um, but really, the sort of day-to-day -day is really about Assemble and making sure it's doing a good job for its clients. So we think we'll see an expansion of the, the build to rent to own projects with Australian Super and we'll start to commit more projects during this year um, down on focused on the eastern seaboard and we expect to have onboarded a number of other clients as well so a number of other asset owners over the next three to five years to maybe be able to expand our 
um, pure play build to rent business. So, you know, really the big challenge over the next three to five years is are we doing a good job operating our assets? Are our communities happy? Are our residents happy? Have they got a better life with us than around the corner? Some of those things that, you know, we're mentioning earlier. So I'm making sure because, you know, reputation and the way in which, you know, you're delivering on your promises, you know, good quality housing, good service, you know, highly sustainable, low energy use, all these things, making sure we're doing a really good job for our our sort of, we've got our institutional clients who own the assets and then we've got our other clients who are our residents. So making sure we're doing a really good job for them, you know, and that's something I'm really confident we're in a good place to do. Um, but we really need to sort of keep our eye on the ball on that and um, you know, make sure that, you know, I guess we're getting good Google reviews and, and whatever else people sort of uh, assess us. Yeah. Well, Chris Staff, always a pleasure catching up with you. Insightful discussion as always and wishing you and the team all the best for the future. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me.